in the silence in my words through our imagination. May your Holy Spirit rest upon us, inspire us, speak to us and change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So this evening, my attempt is to try and craft and weave together three key themes which help us explore today the title Holy Detours and Happy Endings. We've heard read for us brilliantly by Elizabeth, thank you again, the account of the visit of the Magi to the Holy Family. And so much of this evening will be based around that part of Matthew's Gospel that most significant of epiphany encounters. But secondly, I want to be threading some of our thoughts together with that second reading. Again, as Elizabeth pointed out, our motto for our church this year. Those single verses, or that single verse from the letter to the Philippians. And then finally, as our worship climaxes this evening, we will be renewing our covenant promise together that powerful prayer written by John Wesley and used by UK Methodists around the world here um, tonight and this morning, the start of a new calendar year, a spiritual recalibration, a prayer for our resolute focus for the year ahead, for those unfamiliar with it, rather like a holy, sacred New Year's resolution. And so as we progress today, I invite you to make use of the white space that's on your notices and take notice of where God may be speaking to you. It may be through my words. It may be through your mind as it wanders. It may be you hearing God in the way that you recognize. And I invite you to keep the page open of the service book, which has the covenant prayer, just in case you get a little bit bleary of my words you can turn to those powerful, prayerful words that I'll be referencing throughout the rest of this sermon. There are three sections or three things that I want us to explore. The first, we saw his star. The second, returned by another route. And the third, carry on to completion. We saw his star, returned by another route carry on to completion. We saw his star. In January 1994, an earthquake lasting up to 20 seconds hit the San Fernando Valley in California, Los Angeles. Well, it caused nearly $20 billion in damage. It killed nearly 60 people. Much of the city's power was lost because of the earthquake Radio and television stations were knocked off the air. That night, the Griffiths Observatory in Los Angeles began to receive some strange phone calls from panicked residents reporting a strange sky. They speculated that perhaps this strange silver cloud had caused the earthquake. With some confusion, the director of the observatory suddenly realized what was going on. Because when the city lights had been switched off, made powerless for the first time maybe ever, people living in Los Angeles looked up and saw a dark, brilliant sky. 
what was a scary, smoky, silver cloud was, in fact, the Milky Way. Today, two-thirds of the US population and a fifth of the world can't see the universe or the galaxy to which we're a part. I wonder when the last time was for you when you looked up and saw the stars properly. When was the last time you were able to see anything more than a few speckles finding their way through the city's smog and pollution? This passage from Matthew chapter 2 reminds us about the importance of looking up. It speaks about God's authority over nature. It talks about strangers and foreigners being part, an integral part of God's plan. It speaks about the infant Jesus not only coming with a message of salvation for the Jewish people, the audience that Matthew had in mind for much of his gospel, but here it speaks of Jesus coming for the Zoroastrian stargazers, people who worshipped but did not convert. This is a passage which, for Matthew, prioritises the wealthy intelligentsia rather than the religiously righteous, the migrant workers of the nighttime economy, those mentioned by Luke. And it's not even particularly poetic, certainly nothing that John could compete with. Instead here, this Jewish gospel writer, writing for a Jewish audience, records that the first people to worship Jesus were stargazing astrologers. Zoroastrian followers from a foreign and faraway land. People who know the general etiquette to spend time with those in influence and power. Where do you go to seek a king? You go to the palace. Hello. These are the cosmopolitan elite of their day. The Magi have enough cross-cultural knowledge to know where they should be looking for a new king. But they don't offer Herod the same homage and honour that they offer to Jesus a few verses later. Most significantly for me this year, reading this very familiar passage, is that these strangers from a strange land are spiritually attentive. Whether they adhere to horoscopes or to merely good astronomical geography, this caravan of attendants, animals, gift bearers, magicians, notice something significant. They notice the truth of what is significant in the galaxies around them, and they act upon it. And then they remain attentive to the movement of the spirit as they're informed of their next move through a dream. Just like those Californian residents of 1994 San Fernando, I wonder if we're looking up to the sky enough. The Magi will have done to notice this new astrological event, to begin to interpret its meaning, that they will have crossed reference with ancient texts and prophecies in order to plan their travels. And they brought with them perfect, meaningful gifts to worship and honour this new saviour of the world. The Magi looked up and saw the changing stars. They caught a glimpse literally of the heavens and they captured something of the grace of this moment. 
and risked and left everything to pay homage to this Christ child. At the start of our new year, is our God big enough to command the stars and to lead those who are far away, physically or intellectually, into a revelation of the kingdom of God? At the start of our personal New Year's, are we tuned to noticing the grace notes and starlight of the kingdom of God? Do we notice it, even like the Milky Way, when it's right in front of us? What clouds or camouflage do we need to be lifted for us to notice what God has placed there all along? Secondly, returned by another route. There is one word which is sure to strike fear into my very soul. A one word which causes such panic that it's very utterance that it can lead me a long, long way from the psalmist's still waters and calm thoughts. It's a word contained in the vocal programming of my sat-nav. Recalibrating. In satellite navigation terms, recalibrating basically means, you stupid woman, you've not followed my instructions, you are very, very lost, and not even this expensive piece of computer equipment and all the satellites of heaven have a clue right now how to get you out of it. Much of our wider society, and perhaps us too, have spent a significant amount of time and potentially money recalibrating this new year. They've made resolutions, joined gyms, started a diet, left the partner, joined a dating agency, started something new, stopped something old, found their one-word motto to live by, tidied, sorted, and expelled. The new year provides an invitation for us to take stock, to reflect on the year past, to make practices and plans which improve us for the future. It is quickly becoming big business, this faithless self-help world of cathartic practices and rituals. An invitation to recalibrate. But recalibrating actually isn't about failure. You stupid woman, you should have turned right. It shouldn't incite fear. Because calibration is not about being on the wrong path or lost without a trace. It's actually an essential engineering term. Calibration means to determine, check, or rectify a gradient. It's about the dividing marks on a measurement tool like a thermometer or a measuring cup. It's about firing a gun with the right correct range using the right tool with the right caliber for the right job. It's to plan or devise something so carefully as to have a precise use. To be calibrated, therefore, is to be accurate, to be planned and measured. It's a term of precision, not of guilt and shame. Perhaps it's the stuff of fact in a post-truth society. And so I'm intrigued by this very last verse of the passage read to us, the Magi story in Matthew. For such a significant set of people in this early part of Jesus' life, 
they leave the narrative without a trace returning by another route. For all of their accuracy and long-term planning, we find them here being pretty laissez-faire about what they're meant to do and instead have a recalibrated new route home back to the Persian outback. For me, the very stuff of nightmares, recalibrating 12%. But for this group of wise people traveling throughout the whole of the ancient Near East, this recalibration is just one part of their journey and they follow the spirits leading on their return trek. Their recalibration is, not, is one of geography, it's not one of religious conversion. <laughs> How awkward for the evangelist in me to discover that the first visitors to Jesus in the New Testament recognize him, call him the king of the Jews, honor him with resplendent, expensive gifts, and return home to their ordinary Zoroastrianism. The whole narrative, so beautifully awe-inspiring and brain-confuzzling, but their recalibration raises far more questions than answers. It leads the poet T.S. Eliot to surmise in his glorious poem, The Journey of the Magi. We had evidence, I had no doubt. I had seen birth and death, but I thought that they were different. This birth was hard and bitter agony for us, like death, but our death. And we returned to our places, these kingdoms, no longer at easier. In the old dispensation, with an alien people clutching their gods, I should be glad of my other death. The experience of the Magi, the wise men, the magicians, as T.S. Eliot suggests, may well have left them wondering about them no longer at ease in an old dispensation. Made me wonder, is power and grace found in the midst of confusion and encounter with Christ, rather than in the subtle confidence that comes from simple answers and simple old-time tradition. Even to a Jewish audience, these opening questions of Matthew's gospel are about God being at work outside formal religious structures, demographics, people groups, expectations, ritual. Might our own recalibration be needed? Is this year our moment to be more spiritually attentive? to risk being even more confused so that we encounter the risen and infant Jesus in our midst, rather than relying on the conventional answers and traditional practices of the past. How might the covenant prayer be that recalibration for us this evening? Thirdly and finally, carry on to completion. More words that strike me with fear. I am not a natural completer finisher. I have a jigsaw on a table in our house, which I started three weeks before our daughter was born. She's now 14 months old. 
I have a skirt in my sewing drawer, and yes, I have a sewing drawer, um, which I started before our wedding in 2014, and with the idea of taking it on honeymoon with us. It currently has no hem, no zip. Let's face it, it's two cut-out pieces of A-line material that never actually got matched up. I have numerous books that I've not finished reading, which is no fault of the author. I'm the sort of person that sees deadlines as a creative suggestion. That God is carrying on to completion, seeing me as a lifelong project, gives me quite a lot of hope. I recognise that I am in need of minor and sometimes more major recalibrations, those adjustments of grace. But in my day-to-day discipleship, my following of Jesus, it helps me to realise that it is a day-to-day decision process too. Neither my humanity nor my faith are finished products right now. And so this verse to the church in Philippi, chosen as our verse motto for church this year, makes it clear that this is God at work. For all of my effort, my good work, my paying it forward, my graciousness, my forgiveness, my cynicism and my snideness, we are to have confidence that our discipleship is a mutual project with Christ as the centre, the inspiration and the vehicle. Sometimes we do need those micro-adjustments in our lives to be recalibrated to the kingdom of God. But sometimes, just sometimes, we need something a little bit bigger, something far more powerful to help with our kingdom recalibration. Sometimes we need the earthquake to hit so that the clouds of doubt, depression, anxiety, addiction, complacency, busyness, sadness, loss, pain, and debt are lifted, and that we recognize our small part in this amazing universe and galaxy, just like those people in San Fernando in 1994. What very few commentators seem to do when reading the story of the Magi's visit is move from verse 12 to verse 13. The way that the scriptures are currently printed, there's a nice gap between the two passages. And so you can miss the macabre twist in this particular tale, the gruesome decision which overshadows the gifts of gold, frankincense and myrrh. Oh yes, the Magi may leave by their recalibrated route to go on pondering what this was all about. But Herod has other plans. Announcing his insecurity by ordering the death of any boy child under the age of two. The Magi's visit caused this act of infanticide. But how often then do we hear of God's people discovering something of grace in the midst of the deepest part of brokenness and pain? Not because of it, Not even despite it. But those moments of great daring and courage which come from the midst and the depths of our vulnerability and frailty. Life-changing moments which help us bring greater clarity and grace to our faith journey. The Catholic theologian Paul Tillich has said this. 
grace strikes us most when we are in great pain and restlessness. It strikes us when we walk through the valley of a meaningless and empty life. It strikes us when we feel our separation is deeper than usual because we've violated another life, a life which we loved, from which we are no longer. It strikes us when our disgust for our own being, uh, indifference, weakness, hostility, lack of direction and composure have become intolerable to us. It strikes us when, year after year, long-for perfection of life does not appear. And when the old compulsions continue to reign within us as they have for decades. When despair has destroyed all joy and courage. Twenty sixteen has been caricatured as a year of great pain and global restlessness. And I think for many has been experienced like that too. For whatever we have promised ourselves in this coming year, Tillich helps me remember that grace strikes us at the worst of times as well as the best. The kingdom of God, like the Milky Way, is present in our midst, whether we choose to notice it or not. This journey of faith, this coming and carrying on to completion, means that we're not on our own. But it does require us to be spiritually attentive, recalibrated and open to moments of awe-inspiring grace. It's a journey which we are continuing, ongoing, a process, a process of goodness and graciousness which we are called to until Christ comes again. And we are not the project of fullness of life alone. I wonder what that actually means for our discipleship, for our growth, for our relationships this year. I wonder where grace needs to strike us again. Maybe in our separation, our meaninglessness, our emptiness, or in our indifference, our weakness, our hostility, or our old ways. Walt Disney has been credited with the following phrase, but probably never said it, and it is traceable back to St. Julian of Norwich. However, Walt Disney once said, everything will be okay in the end. If it's not okay, it's not the end. For many on social media and for listeners of Five Lives with Youth show, this has become their mantra for their hopes of 2017. There are times, however, when these quaint words of a cartoonist fall short. We need to know that we are on a journey to completion, individually, corporately, as a church community here, and with the whole of creation. And so we move towards the covenant prayer, our moment opportunity of recalibration towards the will of Christ in our everyday joy and sorrow, choice and experience. And through it, and through these moments, may we be prepared to be struck by grace afresh. A grace which speaks to Zoroastrian philosophers from afar and which still whispers 
in the midst of our personal despair and pain. A grace which transforms and recalibrates us and keeps us moving forwards if we dare to live it. A grace which peels away the smog and pollution of our life and in a moment of post-earthquake tranquility reminds us that the kingdom of God remains present whether we see it or not. For this is grace, ultimately found in the love of Christ, the God with flesh on child, the miracle maker, the bread breaker, the death defeater. I am no longer my own, but his.